I'm Jeremy Burley, and this is who I am. My guest today is Jeremy Burley, a toy designer and graphic artist who's created such works as Eye of the Gods and his latest series, Morning Star. Welcome to the show, Jeremy. Thank you for joining us. Thanks for having me, Jamie. It's a pleasure. Yeah. Thank you for coming down to the to the garage and uh, coming down here again. I know that last time you came down here to talk to me for your, your YouTube channel. Um, yeah. So thank you again for coming down. At some stage, I will leave my garage <laughs> and actually go to visit people and talk to them. I will... I will make the effort to to travel but see you've got all the equipment so that's actually the nice thing when you have a good setup it makes sense that people come to you oh <laughs> thank you um so jeremy burley um you grew did you grow up in california um i grew up in california i was born in new york on mm-hmm. uh, on long island and uh, my family moved out here when i was about four years old so i don't really count myself as a true new yorker i always joke that you can't claim uh you can't claim the east coast unless you stay there through middle school Right. Okay. When did art come into your life? Uh, wow. Art, I think, has always been a part of my life. I can remember prior to being four years old, probably when I was about two or three, being really enthralled by the uh, the old classic Spider-Man cartoon. And I remember specifically that my, my parents got me the, the Spider-Man bed sheets, Spider-Man drapes, had like a you know big plush Spider-Man action figure. So... I think I was already kind of leaning into a creative mindset. And I can remember also when I was starting, when I was about preschool, starting kindergarten, my, I have two older brothers. And at the end of each school year, they would come home and have what's their, their composition books. And they would be maybe halfway filled, two thirds filled. And they would just, you know, be ready to toss them away. And mm-hmm. my parents would give me the, their leftover composition books and I would just fill them full of crayon drawings. So I was right. already, you know, making art as an early age, you know, just purely for the fun of it. Oh, okay. Hmm. And when did you uh, when did you start to realize that you were good? When did you start to realize that like this was something that this was a skill that you had? I'm good. Yes, you are good. <laughs> <laughs> well, um, well, no, because I, I I remember the exact moment when I realized I wasn't good. So it's it's I've always been interested with artists when they you know there's I know there's the the kind of uh, feeling that you should never rest on your laurels and that you should always uh, strive to improve and that. But there's definitely a tipping point where you're like, uh, if I push this muscle, I can develop it as opposed to this really isn't for me. I should find something else. And I remember for me, it was in school. I, I, there was a, a guy in school who was um, drawing, uh, he was sketching out uh, headshots and they were basically uh, Todd McFarlane mm-hmm. complete copies where he'd just practice and practice and learn how to do these Todd McFarlane headshots. Mm-hmm. And I remember looking at him going, I... I that's he's just ripping off Todd McFarlane. Anyone can do that. <laughs> and then I tried to draw a head myself, and it looked awful. And I was like, Oh, actually, he's, there is some, you know, he's doing something there. But I, I don't have that. I don't. I can't copy Todd McFarlane or do my own thing. So I kind of put my pencils to one side. And <laughs> there's some there's some craft there. You saw. Oh wait, this this kid's put some work into it. Or maybe he's just got the the touch. Or maybe he's just a really good copyist, which doesn't necessarily. It's a different type of creative talent. Mm. Um, did you start by copying Spider-Man pictures, or was it was it there there your own was your your art your own thing very early on? Well, uh, my, I kept my ambitions low. I can remember very specifically the earliest art I can remember making 
was the um, from the the classic Battlestar Galactica TV series mm-hmm. that I was doing pictures. I was drawing the 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 scanners when they the Viper fighters were flying and they were approaching conflict. There were also sequences right before the, the space battles, like building the tension where you would see the, the ships and you see their little scanner radar. It would have like the little triangles for their ships and the other symbols for the, their enemy ships kind of moving towards them and both squadrons would be moving towards each other. And you're like, they're coming, they're coming, they're approaching. And I would kind of replicate those, drawing little triangles on grids in yeah. my brother's compositions because the, the lines of the, the composition sheet kind of reminded me of the, the, the interface of the scanner on the TV show. So mm-hmm. I remember drawing those. Right. Um, well, and the, the silent ships were like little ovals, weren't they? Like yeah, they, yeah, yeah, exactly. Shapes or mm-hmm. So it's like ovals and triangles. I'm like, eh, you know, <laughs> at like five years old, I could handle that. Yeah. Draw, you know, draw some bad, you know, I would draw little space bells where I have ovals and triangles in various positions with little crayon zaps going to each other, a little. Yeah. So, you know, I, I was already, that was copying. And then I can remember, let's say, fourth, fifth grade. I was in grade school, in primary school, during the time when G.I. Joe and Transformers hit. Mm -hmm. And I remember the two things that I would do. One was that I would draw my own Transformers. Like, I would draw either existing characters like a Soundwave or a Grimlock or characters. And what I would do is I would try to make paper dolls of them. And I would try to draw them in such a way that if you were to cut out the paper doll, you could transform it. So it would just be folded in just the right way. Said you would occasionally I'd have to use a piece of tape here and a piece of tape there, but do a little bit of paper engineering. Mm -hmm. For the most part, you could just cut them out and be like, oh, this is a robot. And then you fold up and it's like, it's a paper box in the shape of Soundwave as a cassette box. You know, Mm -hmm. simple stuff like that. And the other thing that I remember copying was uh, Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles. Now, mind you, I had never read the original Eastman and Laird comics. I read some of the uh, the Archie comics that started coming out later on, mm-hmm. which I don't have them anymore, but I bet even looking back there, the artists that were working on them now are probably luminaries in the comic industry. It was like, oh my God, this person was drawing Ninja Turtles. But when they first were doing the Archie, Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtle comics, I would start doing um, Ninja Turtle drawings that I was doing. And then that was my first fan art and I was selling it to my classmates. Oh, They'd nice. They request particular characters, <laughs> characters doing different things. So at that point, I don't think that I even said, oh, I'm good at this. Oh, I have talent at it. It was that I'm making something that I enjoy that other people value. Right. Mm Because even to this day, I still feel like when someone says something nice about my art, I've learned to shut off my self-critical side. I save my my self-criticism for when I'm working and I'm trying to improve. Mm -hmm. When someone says something nice, I simply say thank you. And I try to be in a place of gratitude that somebody enjoys something I made. Mm. I don't try to be egotistical and say, oh, wow, this person's telling me that my stuff's awesome. I'm so cool. This is great. I don't, I don't think about it as an ego stroke. I simply say, thank you. I'm glad you appreciate that I made this. Mm. And you do, you do a lot of live drawing at the moment, don't you? You post up a lot of live drawing on Instagram. Mm. Um, oh, yeah, yeah. Um, well, I take figure drawing classes uh, at the Animation Guild in Burbank mm-hmm. um, at least once a week. Right now, I'm actually taking a class that's twice a week. It's on costume and drapery. Um, there's an instructor, Carl Ganas. He teaches at a lot of the, um, a lot of the like the Disney Studios and DreamWorks. You know, he'll teach workshops there. So he's the guy who teaches animators at the big studios how to draw better. Right. And so I'm fortunate to be able to study with him. And I've been going there for a number of years. They have a bunch of great instructors there, um, like Will Weston, um, perspective and environmental drawing illustrator John Messer, John Messer, who I've, I've studied with recently. Because mm-hmm. I'm like, oh wow, I'm starting to get a handle on figures. I need to work on my backgrounds more. 
So if I could, I would take every class by every instructor there. There's a ton of great artists that teach there. So Okay. Oh. But, oh, wait, no, but I realized I just, yeah, a lot of the work from those classes, I just sort through my drawings and I'll photograph some of them. And I try to post something on my blog every day. Right. A figure drawing, um, an environmental study, just whatever it is, just for my classwork, um, along with posting my work in progress on my comic book work. Mm-hmm. So, because there may be days where, let's say I'm having a busy week in my day job and I don't have time to, to get to the comic stuff, at least this way, people know, if I don't have a comp that's coming out every month, which is the case, that I'm still making art on a regular basis and I'm just trying to stay connected to people that are following me on social media so you can, so you can see just part of my everyday life of, yeah, I'm constantly making things and, and producing stuff. So even if the comics aren't there in the forefront all the time, you know, I'm, I'm out there. I'm making stuff still. Mm-hmm. And were you one of those uh, kids that used to fold paper and staple it together and do your own comic books? Or did that come later? Did comics come later into your life from animation? Mm-hmm. You were saying that you were more drawn to... Well, I know that I was drawn into comics in terms of enjoying the medium. Mm-hmm. Probably around that that age, around that that fifth or sixth grade, you know, ten, twelve years old, I you know, GI Joe and Transformers is what got me to start going to comic shops. Right. Originally, my my local newsagent or our local uh, newsstand, they had GI Joe and Transformers cartoons. It was a big thing. I remember as a kid when they had commercials for the original GI Joe comic books, mm. and that, I think that for a large number of kids of the eighties was a, a key a key time for us, the fact that we could see these cool four-color adventures that we saw. It was before G.I. Joe, the animated series, series cartoon that was on, came out. Oh, Just right. starting with showing commercials of animation, of comic book characters, and we were like, it was an ad for it. We're like, what? This is a comic book? Where do I buy comic books? <laughs> and we have to go out and find them now. And that drove a ton of kids out to go and, um, and pick them up. So I started with reading just those books, and that was before I found my local comic shop, which probably a few years later when I got into middle school. But oddly enough, my mom had, um, she ended up picking up the comic book adaptation of Dune for me. Oh, wow. Because okay, yeah. after uh, the David Lynch film came out, mm-hmm. uh, for some reason, whenever they would play it in Southern California, they would rebroadcast it, they would play it over two nights because it was a long movie and they had like additional footage they put in. And I would just be glued to the TV every time. And at that age, I really didn't understand a lot of it, mm. but I was still entranced by the visuals. And so my mom kind of realized I was really into it, so she saw the comics and got me that. And I had no, that was way before I started following creators. Ironically enough, drawn by Bill Sienkiewicz, who ended up being one of my biggest influences. Yeah. So I was like, wow, this is a... Uh, I went back later and, and looked at those issues. I was like, wow, even then. And it's kind of like me... I don't know if somebody, other artist had, had been drawing it, whether I would be trying to do other types of visual styles, mm. but it seemed interesting to me that I had completely forgotten that one of someone who I consciously recognize as an influence on me was there at an early age before I was even aware of style. Yeah. Hmm. Yeah, because the, the, the Marvel adaptions at that time, mm. adaptations, the, um, they had the Blade Runner... Mm-hmm. book and there, there was a few because they i think they had the success of the star wars yeah uh, uh, comic books and mm-hmm. they wanted to try and recreate that with other so i know they movies. had um i don't know if marvel published it but there was the alien um yeah one that walt simonson draw, yeah. had mm-hmm. drawn yeah so yeah they had a, a few different movie adaptations but it was like it was it was it, it i remember looking back at especially the alien one there's i mean you can see the artist there you can see that their style is there mm-hmm. but it's almost contained by this this 
um, it was almost like a separate house style that Marvel had on those mm-hmm. books, and I think that was established by the Star Wars yeah. uh, work and and by the Blade Runner one as well. It mm-hmm. was like a definite, almost like a news newspaper strip mm-hmm. style that they had in them. Um, so you you started making comics, but then you, I mean, oh, pay, oh, the whole thing about comics. stapling together and making yeah. your own. Well, I think oddly enough, when, as a child, I wanted to be a toy designer or a photographer. Oh wow. And, um, well, I wanted to be a photographer for Playboy because, oh. you know, at that age where, <laughs> at that age where I knew that I liked looking at women, but I didn't understand what I wanted to do with them. Mm-hmm. Um, it's that sort of thing. So, uh, but, and I ended up going the toy design route since that in, ended up being my day job. Mm. But I don't think I really actively started stapling together and making my own little booklets Probably, I, I might have done it once or twice around the era that the Transformers, the movie, came out, the animated movie. Mm-hmm. Um, I think I might have made a couple then. But when I was in high school, I at that point, I had a, enough wherewithal to do research on the comic industry and how to properly make comic books. You know, the, the art boards were 11 by 17 with a 10 by 15, figuring out the structure of it. And that was at the time that Wizard Magazine first started coming out. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So it was the first time that there was a, a publication that could actually show you, this is how creative professionals write and tell stories. Yeah. And that was fascinating for me. And being able to go to small conventions that were in Southern California and meet with creators, look at their work, have them give me feedback on their work, I ended up joining a small studio that put out a couple of anthology books. Um, it's the kind of thing where I was happy to be in it but of course the work that i would look at now probably looking back then artistically is horribly embarrassing i feel like the (laughs) the writing was still good in the collaborators i worked with but you know me and another writer partner i work with you know he and i were both in high school Mm. yeah it's not my best work per (laughs) se but but that was really when i started making comics right do you remember what the first one was do you remember um it was a book called It's a Horrible Life. Mm. And what it was was a spoof on It's a Wonderful Life where this guy who's a complete loser decides to kill himself and then his guardian angel basically tries to hang himself and his guardian angel comes in and breaks the the noose and his guardian angel is like a cigar chomping, you know. Imagine like an emaciated Danny DeVito. Mm. You know, like (laughs) cigar chomping, you know, snarky, lowbrow, gruff guy. You know, like his guardian, guardian angel is almost kind of as much of a loser as he is. Mm-hmm. And it's almost like he got assigned a crap guy because he's a crap angel. But then, because he he broke the, the noose that was going to be choking him, he ended up interfering with what should have been his death. In theory, he was going to be a suicide, should have gone to hell. So then this demon shows up, and he's sort of like, he's like a, a younger Ozzy Osbourne, wearing the big <laughs> black gown, long hair, metal head, giving the, you know, the, the double horns, like, yeah. And this guy's like, you can't take him. He's our property. He was supposed to, it was a suicide. You, you, you interfered. So it's in limbo. He's got a fair point. The, the guardian angel's job is there to, to, to save his soul but he interfered with the, the natural order of things were supposed to be. So then the rest of the series is just him going through his life now as this miserable u- loser. And he's got an angel on one shoulder and a devil on the other, mm-hmm. but there's like a setup for it now. Right. And the whole point is that if this ever gets resolved, then he'll either go to heaven or hell, you know, what have you, or maybe just be saving going with his life. But it's really, 
becomes it just goes deep into the farce of this guy is miserable, has a crap life, and his guardian angel and guardian devil are crap too. And they're <laughs> just they give the worst advice. And it's it very much had a lot of the the tone of Evan Dorkin's milk and cheese. Yeah. That's kind mm-hmm. of what we were going for. So nice. Does it still exist? Do you have a copy? Oh. Um buried in a long box in oh. my, my parents' garage somewhere. Mm-hmm. So how many pages did that? Um, let's see. I want to say that that was like, it was a full 24 pages, but it was done in eight page increments across like three issues of an anthology. Right. And then there was another book that I was working on with uh, a good friend of mine. I still hang out with that was uh, a reinterpretation of the Christopher Marlowe, Dr. Faustus. And, um, is it Goethe or Goethe? The, the German poet who wrote Faust? Yeah. Uh, I, I, I can't pronounce I, his name either. But Goethe. I, Goethe, Goethe, Goethe I, I've, I've heard it pronounced Goethe, mm-hmm. so I'll, I'll go with that. Yes. But I will admit fully of my, my ignorance on the pronunciation. I feel like I should look it up mm-hmm. since I based a comic book on him. <laughs> but uh, that was co-written by myself. And uh, well, I had a writing partner in high school who I'm still really good friends with. He did a lot of the heavy lifting on the writing side. We plot, co-plotted. Mm-hmm. But the premise was just um, after... Um, Dr. Faustus goes to hell at the end of the play. Now he's in hell, but he's this guy who knows so much about about the arcane. He has all this knowledge. Um, the devil realizes, hey, he would be a pretty useful agent to mm. be wandering through Earth. So he actually sends him back to Earth. But what happens is he gets to live a 70-year lifespan like a normal human, and at the end of those 70 years, he would die and be reborn as a demon and wreak all this horrible havoc for seven years. And then he'd be reborn as a human again. And you just continue that cycle throughout eternity. Mm. And so our whole premise was that he was in this anthology. There was a shared superhero universe. It, you know how things get wrapped up into <laughs> continuity real quick. But, <laughs> but within the shared universe, he was sort of an anti-hero of the world. And his whole premise was he started off as a villain and then became an anti-hero in the sense that he sort of gathered a cult of personality around him. These people who understood his like, arcane knowledge, his origins, and they would be wary. He would tr- basically train them to minimize the damage that he caused during the seven years that he was a demon. Mm. So he knows that he, and so he's actually trying to improve society. And it played a little bit with some of the, with some Nietzschean philosophy of him trying to teach humans how to intellectually um, evolve and be kind of like become their own Superman as it were to learn how to take, go beyond just what the normal human capacity is and to reach what the, the outer limits of what you're capable of through mm-hmm. self-determination. But in the process of leading these people out of those, you'll kind of pick the cream of the crop to try and help him say, all right, I'm trying to help humanity, but I'm about to screw over humanity hardcore. Mm-hmm. And we had looked at like different periods in history and trying to think of stuff we'd have him like he was responsible, like in our version, he was responsible for a variety of disasters in history, assassination of, of JFK and Martin Luther King, hmm. um, you know, ver- just various things throughout history. We could say, all right, he was responsible for this, responsible for that. So he's done like all these horrible things. So he tries to do as much good as he can in 70 years. And without fail, every seven years, he does so many horrific things that completely wipe out the scales. And it's just sort of an ongoing cycle of that. Right. And that's something that my, the friend of mine, you know, we still talk about reviving that at some point because it was just an interesting setup for our story. And yeah. I think that when we did kind of the same thing, it was, uh, I think 24 pages broken up over eight issues. And I think we might've done a few more stories beyond that. Mm-hmm. So. Okay. And then, um, so your day job, you said that you are a, a, a toy designer. Graphic yes. Designer. Yes, I am. I'm a toy designer. I work in the, the toy industry doing product design. I'd started as a packaging designer 
and then a previous company I was at, after a number of years there, um, I sort of earned my way into developing uh, a toy property that they developed into a, a short animated, short run animated series. And mm-hmm. then based on that, they're like, okay, we'll let them do product. And then I got to do product for a few years, um, left that company, um, joined a new toy company doing packaging design. And I'm one of those people who I can go back and forth between the two. And it's hard for me to say which one I enjoy more, doing product design or packaging design, because the difference is that the packaging design, even though it's a 3D box, you know, the, the laws of composition and color and typography, they're kind of basic. They're not inflexible, but, you know, good design, you can kind of basically figure out the difference between good design, bad design. And it's just a matter of if you're given a product and a logo and a product, you know, a product shot and a color palette to work with, you just move the pieces around. There's only so many ways. You, I mean, there are a million different ways to skin a cat, but you can kind of say, all right, this is probably the best way to, to show this piece off. Mm-hmm. And there may be a few different ways to skin that cat, but it's more like just putting together a straightforward puzzle. Um, it's easier to do, and you can crank out a lot more work, but it isn't as necessarily interesting as coming up with a new product out of whole cloth. The challenge on the other end is coming up with a new product out of whole cloth. You really are pulling on all of your mental uh, faculties. Mm-hmm. You're using your imagination. You have to do research. Um, you have to look at what has been done in this particular space in the past. You have to be aware of the engineering of it, how to do something, not just making a cool product. The world, the concept, the product design world is littered with the graveyards of brilliant ideas that couldn't be produced cheaply enough. Mm. So, I mean, coming with just the good idea is not enough. You have to say, all right, well, how can we do this and produce it at a price, not only that people will pay, but also produce it so that the unit price, the parts and the the labor to manufacture this thing still allow for a reasonable profit margin for the company. So there's all of these other things that, that go in, that are involved in doing it and, and also doing something that's new that hasn't been done before, that it's more engaging, but it's also more mentally taxing. Mm-hmm. Like, um, I think, you know, we had talked off mic about the idea that some creators, some creative people that have a personal project they work on outside of their day job, a lot of times they come home and it's hard to put their energy into creating after they've spent their whole day being creative. Yeah. And I generally don't feel that. I'm chomping at the bit, champing at the bit. However, again, expressions. A lot of times I, I'm very much looking forward to sitting down and being creative once I get home, regardless of what kind of a work day I've had, mm-hmm. but doing product design and developing stuff brand new out of whole cloth, that's probably the most, ta- that's the closest I really get to being mentally taxed by, uh, by do working in the toy industry is doing, doing that part of the job. Right. And do you, when you, um, to, to create like a separation from your day job and your, your creative uh, projects do you try to use i mean do you use the same tools and approaches or do you try to keep it as separate as possible do you do you try to find a new way to create when you want to work on your own thing so that you have that separation or, or does it not affect you too much it doesn't affect me too much and i try to use whatever i can from both disciplines to help each other i have found for instance oddly enough Back when I was doing packaging design, I found that figure drawing classes made me a better packaging designer mm. because a lot of times I would you know, be drawing a pages of, of figures. I would try to get the gesture down of the, uh, the figure and trying to tell a visual story just in that pose. Mm. And I started realizing both with the figure drawing and with the comic book work, I'm telling a narrative. 
and I started looking at packaging as a story. And I'm like, all right, well, how do I tell the story of it? And the same thing when you're doing figure drawing, you're starting with a gesture to establish what's happening with the figure. What you're trying to, you're not trying to necessarily replicate what's in front of you. You're trying to create an image that that tells the the viewer what's happening. Because mm-hmm. if sometimes you if you draw something copied exactly what you see in front of you, it may be a little bit confusing. So you may have to twist a, the hip a little bit more here, make an arm longer, or change the angle so that when a person looks at it, they're like, "Oh, that's what's happening." Right. Um, there's something weird with the the way the mind works, where if you look at a photograph of something, no matter how poor the angle is, our brains can translate and see what's happening. Whereas when you change it into paint or or pencil or ink, and you look at it. Because it's not a photo, you may look at it and like a foreshortened limb may just look like a blob to you. You mm. can't tell what it is. Yeah. Um, so a lot of times, you know, telling that that visual story in packaging, that's one of those things where it's the, the you know all the other personal work I do has made me better at that job, and vice versa. There's times when just the the efficiency of being able to crank out work quickly. A lot of the the Photoshop and Illustrator tricks that I, I learned and I've learned over the number of years of doing packaging and product design and just my use of learning how to use Photoshop and Illustrator well. Yeah. I know how to do things those programs. I'm not a, I won't say that I'm a master at it, but I have really learned how to exploit those those programs very well so that when I do my own personal art, I'm a lot more efficient. Mm-hmm. So both things feed into it and also the idea of thinking about the commerce side because you know a lot of people there's the arguments of writing and drawing to market Mm -hmm. to find a market for the story you want to tell or creating something specifically to be sold versus i have a creative idea i'm going to make this and put it out in the world kind of the build it they will come thing and you know there's headbutting between the two and the sweet spot is when you can take something that you're passionate about and then bring it to people that will be as equally passionate as you are Right. Equally passionate about enjoying it. And looking at it, the how art and commerce interact inside a large corporation, it informs my personal creative process and me looking at what I do and saying, all right, I'm not going to necessarily do things just to make money. Yeah. What I am going to do is try and pick the thing out of, because I have a large pool of ideas, both just standalone art images I want to paint and make prints out of, as well as comic books that I want to do in a variety of genres. You know, I've got my current books of Western. The book before that was a psychological thriller. I've got epic fantasy stuff I want to do. Look at all of these things and then say, all right, I have a whole pool of things that I'm passionate about. Which ones are the ones that are going to be most profitable? And then once I start that, say, all right, how do I keep what I'm passionate about but maximize the, the profitability of them? Mm-hmm. So... Being able to look at those things through the lens of the, the experiences I've had working within corporate creativity, yeah, it's useful. Some people would say, well, it's soul-sucking. No, it's just infor- trying to become more self-informed. Because again, I'm definitely, if I were an expert at, at the business side of creativity, I wouldn't have a day job at all. I'd just be doing <laughs> my own stuff. But it's worthwhile to... I, I've always looked at it from the standpoint that the artists that truly have the freedom, the creativity to do whatever they want and make whatever they want and not be beholden to anyone also understood the business side well enough that they could make their own work profitable. Mm -hmm. You know, the Andy Warhols of the world. Um, I mean, you look at somebody like, um, like Vincent van Gogh Mm -hmm. 
he was a creative genius and he did whatever he wanted to do, but he also, you know, ended up going mad and you know, shooting himself. Yeah. So and dying in poverty. And yeah. <laughs> I don't want to go that route. <laughs> I want to be alive and enjoy the things that I'm making. And I don't want to be, I think that the starving artist and the artist who has to live in misery to be creativity, mm-hmm. it's not the healthiest stereotype. It just, it isn't. And I strive to have a creative life. Yeah. That's fun. I want to enjoy myself. Like to take a, a side bent, I look at like when you look at musicians, you know, a lot of musicians and rock stars will have that whole thing of like, oh, it's so hard touring and I'm miserable and I really just want to be at home. Um, I look at whenever I see Dave Grohl from the Foo Fighters, when I see him on stage or see him in interviews, he's like a guy who looks like he works his ass off and it's hard work but he seems like he loves it. Mm-hmm. Not like I love being a rock star. It seems like he loves making the things that he makes yeah. and that he gets to, to do this. And I've heard that he still gets, you know, nauseous right before he goes on stage and like throws up even to this day. But once he's out there, he loves it. And that's the kind of thing that I, as for my own creatives, creative, creative process and my creations, I want to be that guy who no matter how hard I work, no matter how much it busts my ass, I wake up every day and I'm like, I get to make comics. I get to make art. Yes. That's what I want every day to be like for me. Mm, yeah. And I've, I've been to uh, conventions with you and I would say that, um, I mean, my conventions aren't my medium, <laughs> <laughs> but, um, watching you when you, when you discuss your work with people and just engaging with people at, at shows that comes across, that really is, is very much there. And, um, I know we've spoken in the past about this, about how it's something that you've worked at. And um, uh, when I first met you and started um, going to conventions with you, it was uh, Eye of the Gods was the book that you, you had mm-hmm. out of that moment. And you said, you know, you work really hard to to um, to fine tune the pitch and make sure that when someone came over, you knew exactly what to say and how to say it. But it's still, I think there's like, you know, you can fine tune a pitch but you have to have the the passion and the enthusiasm has to be there as well. It has to be behind it. And it seems like you, you get a nice balance of those two things that, that, that works very well when we're at shows and, and discussing things with people, you know, mm-hmm. you're, you're very happy to, you still have enough passion and enjoyment about the medium itself that you can engage with people and talk to people about this stuff very, very easily. Oh yeah. Well, I mean, part of the passion is not just me being enthusiastic about what I'm making, but, I, I genuinely am interested in hearing what people that have different creative experiences. And I, when I say that, I don't mean just mean talking to fellow creators, but I mean people that are fans of pop culture, sci-fi, fantasy, superheroes. I like to hear what they're into. Sometimes mm-hmm. they recommend books to me that I've never read before. Sometimes yeah. they tell me about their experiences with their favorite comics and things that got them excited. And I, it's a continuum. The relationship between the creators and the people who consume creative products and enjoy them and become evangelical about them and share them with other people. Mm -hmm. Uh, I, I love making comics because I enjoy the process of sitting at the table and writing and drawing and making these things up. But I would, I don't create them in a vacuum. Mm. I wouldn't be happy to just make them and then like, all right, I finished this book and then just put it in a drawer and shut it away. Yeah. I, I feel like the product, the, the creative process is only complete when I share it with people and they react to it, and then they tell me, this is what I thought about this. This is how it made me feel. Mm -hmm. And I don't look at it necessarily 
in a self-congratulatory, like, I want people to tell me, good job, and pat me on the back. Like, nice, Jeremy. You made some cool comics. Yeah. I look at it like that is the cycle of the creative process. You put out in the world, and then it affects people, and then it comes back. And then, you know, people have told me about pieces I've made that the experience of reading made that they said, I related to it in this way because of these things in my life. And mm. they tell me a little bit about themselves and that sharing, you know, from the reader, for the audience, them sharing with me, that's the completion of the cycle. And then I can internalize that. And I think about those things when I go and I make the next thing. Um, I'm starting to become, I think more and more aware of that, that there is this, this cyclical link between the person who creates and the people who, who consume it. Mm-hmm. And that's what gets me really excited when I'm at shows. So it's like, yeah, I can go on for hours and hours. And sometimes my wife you know, will do conventions with me and she helps out the table and she'll do sales if I'm talking with people. And at a certain point, she'll look over at me and she'll be like, you've been talking to this guy for 45 minutes and you haven't been doing any sketches. You haven't, <laughs> you know, every once in a while, you come over, like when I'm selling your work, I'll pull you over to sign for this. It's like, why are you still talking to them? You should be selling the work. And I'm just like, yeah, but th- this person's interested in the creative process. And I'm talk- like, and I'll sit there and I'll talk with like, when I see young art students, kids that are in, you know, they're in school right now mm-hmm. and they want to talk about the process and ask about, you know, how I made things or what my experience is. That's my favorite thing. The fact that I can share stuff that will hopefully be useful to uh, a young creative person. I, I was very fortunate. It's not like I didn't grow up around creative people. I was mm-hmm. really lucky throughout my life. That I've always had either creative mentors or have just been around people that were a little bit more experienced and could share with me, try this, not try that, or this is what this experience is like, you know, both from a creative professional side and from an actual technical side, in terms mm. of technique, process, creativity. Um, and when people ask me things, I try not to... I try to give them useful information, but also with a ray of hope. Because, right. you know, a lot of times their conversations around the life of a comic book creative professional can be kind of dim. It's backbreaking hours, hard labor, no social life, mm-hmm. um, and oftentimes not a lot of financial reward. And I think that it's important, it's important to not sugarcoat how hard it can be. Yeah. But it's also important to tell people if you, the most important reason to do something is because you love it. Yeah. And I tell them, look, I don't do this for my full-time job. I have another job and I'm lucky that it's a creative job, but you know, it is hard You know, talking to, to friends, you know, that we know who do do comics full-time or not necessarily even full-time, but maybe they're living the freelance lifestyle where their comic book work is part of their freelance career, but they also still have other side hustles as just standalone illustration mm-hmm. or freelance graphic design, you know, various other things and how hard it is to make that work. And I feel like even if I didn't ever make enough money that I could do comics full time, the fact that when I make work and that I make back the money that I spent on my creative time to, to produce it Mm -hmm. and then still getting the interaction that I have from people. I feel like that's the first level. You have to find that rewarding. You have to be find that, that cyclical thing that I mentioned before the engagement of creating something, have somebody affected by it and come back and say, I like this. This is why. And you made something that affected me. Yeah. That's what 
I feel like it means to me when you tell someone you've got to do, you, the work itself has to be its own reward. Mm-hmm. Um, well, you know what? Even to step it further back from that, like I said, I wouldn't do this just if I were in a vacuum, but for me, the hours of the drawing board don't feel like it, they don't feel unpleasant. Right. You know, some, for some people literally once the idea is conceived and they have like, okay, I've got a clear idea in my mind. I've got an outline. I've got some character designs for some people, every single step of making comics, whether it's penciling, inking, lettering, every other step, once they've, they've, you know, they've visualized the product inside every other step is like backbreaking labor, like grind, like, like Hitchcock used to say, where once he's storyboarded the film, it's like the actual act of making it is almost like, well, he's got to do it because the, you know, the studios have paid for the pre-production development. <laughs> but in his mind, the movie's done once he's storyboarded it. Yeah. You know, um, there are a lot of people who feel that way. And I can understand it. But I'm glad that when I sit down at the drawing board, I can just put on some music or a podcast like this great podcast <laughs> and just, just listen and take things in while I enjoy my hand gliding across the, uh, the Bristol board and mm-hmm. shaping things and drawing things and trying to improve how a drawing looks and saying, oh, you know what? This drawing didn't come out quite right. I'm going to white out this panel and I'm going to take some more photo reference and figure it out. Like that whole process of the, the nuts and bolts of putting together a comp book or a visual mm-hmm. narrative, those things are still pleasurable to me. Right. So I figured the first do- step is that that has to be pleasurable. The second step has to be enjoying the fact that you're making something and it's affecting people. And I'm starting to learn to enjoy the marketing side more. Mm-hmm. It's harder. It's not. It, it, it's less intuitive for me. I think there's some people who who excel at it naturally and don't even really have to think about it. They're just, and I don't mean it in a negative way, natural salesmen. Mm-hmm. Because when I look at what I'm doing when I'm at conventions and the enthusiasm I show, I don't think of it as selling. I think of it as sharing. Yeah, I think of it like, like when you have show and tell in mm-hmm. school as a child. You're like, this is a cool movie I like, or this is my Transformer, or this is whatever toy I have. I'm all, this is the book I made, and this is the art I did, and this is the reference I used, and this is what I made, and here, and this is what I made, it, and this is why I like it. Mm-hmm. That's how I look at it. I really look at it like show and tell. And in fact, what I usually try to do is I try to give people whatever, like like a, you know having my pitch down for my previous book, Eye of the Gods, or now with Morningstar, I try to get the pitch out of the way as early as possible when someone comes up to my table at a convention, and I, I share it, and I tell them, yeah, it's available and it's here, and please feel free to flip through it. And then once they start flipping through, I try to get into what they're into. I'd right. rather, from then on, I want to talk about them and what they're into. And if it leads them into more questions, them asking me more questions about myself and my creative process, it's good because I've got those answers. I think about that stuff all the time. Mm-hmm. If it ends up with me talking about someone and learning more about their life experience, I'm like, that's, that's good too. I'm into that. Yeah. Was it and last year or the year before you went to a whole bunch of conventions, right? You did a whole, um, pretty much like the whole year you were mm-hmm. going to one almost every week. Um, well, you know, it wasn't that ambitious. <laughs> it was probably, I think it was two years ago. Yeah. And what I tried to do was I tried to go to a convention every month. Oh, okay. Mm-hmm. So it was, it was way, way less ambitious. Um, still hard with a day job. Yeah, definitely. But... And even that, it still ended up being, I think, nine conventions overall because I didn't have a convention in January 
and then there were no conventions, or at least none that I could get to conveniently in uh, November and December. Right. So still one show, approximately one show a month, and it beat me down. Right. Because the the prep time leading up to a show, you know, it's not just going away for that weekend. It's all the stuff you have to do to make sure that you have all of your art supplies together, um, any artwork you need to do beforehand, mm-hmm. packing, organizing, all the stuff. Usually the, the two weeks before it, are you get very little other creative work done because you're just trying to make sure that all your I's are dotted and all your T's are crossed. Yeah. And then the week afterwards, you're like, oh, I... You kind of need to decompress a little bit mm-hmm. because as, as chatty as I am here with you now, I go through phases in my general daily life. I'm not super talkative. Mm. I spend a lot of time just, you know, my headphones on, you know, I'll take my, my headphones off and kind of interact with my coworkers a little bit and chit chat, but then I'll, you know, back to listening to music, you know, listening to podcasts, listening to audiobooks, and just making and kind of grinding away. So in particular weekend at a comm convention, I will do more talking in that one weekend than I will do in all of the rest of the month. Right. So it's not that I'm a shy person, it's I'm an internal person. Because, mm-hmm. you know, shy people really, you know, I, I understand that also because I, I definitely, I was shy as a child. I remember what that feels like. And then I started realizing that I think the way I came overcame that shyness was realizing that I had all these things going on in my head, which shows in my artwork, you know, thinking about things, creative, creative process, what have you. And I realized that giving voice to those thoughts, letting those things out and letting them engage with people, I realized, oh, wait, I can just, within reason, I can share what's in my head. Yeah. <laughs> and that gives me enough fuel that I can have pleasant conversations with people. But that said, after doing that for a certain amount of time, that muscle gets worn out. Yeah. There's some people that I, I, I completely understand that, you know, the whole difference between introverts and extroverts. Introverts um, lose energy. They gain energy from being alone with their thoughts, whereas extroverts gain energy from being around people and interacting with people. Mm-hmm. And for me, I am a, I'm a non-shy introvert. Right. Because I have no problem talking with people I don't know, complete strangers, trying to just spend time around them, interacting, trying to find ways, not necessarily to fit in, but to engage. I can completely do that. But at a certain point, it's like I've got that power meter. It's like Mario, you know, Mario Brothers or, uh, <laughs> or Street Fighter where the bar gets lower and lower and lower. And then when I reach that point, I just kind of shut down. I'm like, all right, I just, I, I don't have any more to say. I'm like, I, I'll listen. Mm-hmm. I'm real good at listening. I'll sit down. I'll, I'll just sit and like, tell me stuff. Go ahead. You talk. But mm-hmm. I'm like, I'm not carried anymore of the conversation. I'm done. I'm out. So, and, you know, so that's more of kind of the, 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 the line of the spectrum I'm on. Right, mm-hmm. I'm for doing those, doing that number of shows, doing those nine shows in a year. Mm-hmm. Did that change anything for you at the, at the end of it? Did you come out? Was that the moment where you you thought, oh, I, I kind of like the the sales side of this. Mm-hmm. I'm more interested in that, or the you had more interest in that, I should say. Or did it change how you approach your work? Did it did it fuel anything for you? Or? Um, well, that's a good question. I think most of what it informed was probably more on the business side because it made me really aware that I, I kept track of all of my expenses mm-hmm. for tax purposes. But that show was the first year that I realized I need to start doing profit and loss sheets for my creative personal business because I realized, okay, I need to really look at what shows are profitable versus not profitable because 
of the toll that it takes on me, I want to make sure that if a sh- I did really well at a show, that I come back to it. Because there's some shows where I spend a lot of money on airfare, mm-hmm. tables, hotels for, and the sales did not warrant going there. Even if, because that's the thing, I can go to the crappiest small podunk comic convention, and if I have like a couple of good conversations with some interesting comic fans, I feel like emotionally I'm satisfied. Mm-hmm. Financially, I might not be satisfied, <laughs> but I'm like, I'm fine. I'll, I'll go anywhere and you know talk to anybody about art and comics. So it changed forcing myself to be more aware and engage on the business side, and it's still something that I'm working through. I think in terms of how I interact with people, all it did was it helped me relax a little bit more. It was mm-hmm. a lot more like playing scales as a, as a musician. Yeah. The sense that I, at this point, I've already been like pitching my comics for, for a while now, but it was just the, the ongoing repetition and being comfortable with, with you know, meeting people I didn't know and saying, hey, here's my work. Please take a look. Some people are like, hmm, no thanks, and not having my feelings hurt if they're not interested. Um, it, it made me, it just developed and strengthened that muscle that I was already kind of working on. I'm trying to think if there's any other big takeaway that wasn't on the business size on the business side. Um, I'm can, I can guarantee you that there is something and it's not coming to my mind right now. <laughs> <laughs> um, with, uh, I have the gods. Um, how, how long did you work on that before you put that book out? Cause, uh, see, I would say probably about five, maybe five and a half years. Uh-huh. Cause the gestation of that story was such that it, it had been in my head probably since I was in college. And when I finally sat around to start working on it, I wasn't drawing in traditional comic size. And I wasn't even thinking about publishing it. I was thinking about doing it as a webcomic. And this was way before webcomics had really taken root mm-hmm. as, a, as a, a medium. Like at this point, it's almost silly to call them webcomics. They're just comics. They have to be online as a distribution format. But I think at this point, a lot of webcomics have received enough like mainstream acceptance. I mean... Hell, um, Bloom County, it's a webcomic yeah. now. Yeah. Yeah. You know? <laughs> um, but I had started doing it on like nine by 12 paper and it was like just pen and ink and acrylic wash. Mm-hmm. And I had outlined, I had my outline for the overall story and I drew probably about the first 30 pages or so. And that was a process that took more, again, working a day job. Mm-hmm. It took maybe two or three months to do that. Maybe a little longer. Memory's foggy. But I got done. I completed that part. And I was about to move on to the next chapter. And I realized that there was another character in there. And I started thinking, well, is this character even really necessary? And what's about to happen in this next chapter? I realized I haven't worked all of this out. I just had a vague outline of where I was going. And I realized, hmm, there's probably a lot of stuff in this story that I think I know where I'm going. And I Mm. haven't worked this out yet. And I don't want to bash people that are that write by the seat of their pants. I think that there's some great writers who simply can start like like a Mobius thing. And you know, Mobius is a genius, but there's people making contemporary comics today who can just start at the beginning point. Here's a character, then a situation, and then just spin yarns and spin yarns and spin yarns and keep people engaged and tell gripping, fascinating stories. Mm-hmm. I unfortunately do not have that muscle. <laughs> <laughs> I got to plan stuff out. So what I ended up doing was I took my, I sat down and I thumbnailed out the entire series. And then I lettered that, well, first I went through and I flushed out my 
my outline even more, even more thoroughly, and really broke it down to a chapter by chapter break, understanding all of the emotional beats. I ended up removing some characters that I realized really were ex- ex- extraneous and trying to streamline the story down to really just revolving around four characters. Mm-hmm. What were their emotional arcs? What were their motivations? And trying to make it so that the, the story was a lot more gratifying just on a written level. Once I did that, then I went through and I thumbnailed the entire graphic novel as a whole. Then I lettered those thumbnails so I could read the whole thing as a book. Mm. That process alone, probably the, the rewriting, the thumbnailing, and the lettering, I want to say was maybe a two-year process. Right. And then once I could read it as a book, I could still, then I could go back and do another passive editing, removing pages here, adding pages there, condensing scenes, moving scenes around, that kind of thing. And then once I had edited it down to what I felt was the tightest version of the story, and I think even that, before I got to that, I still didn't have the little coda that's on the end of the story. The, the story ended in a much bleaker manner. <laughs> um, there's a scene, you, you know, you having seen the book, there's a scene where the main character shoots another character, and that scene was literally how the story ended. Mm. And that would have been a very bleak, bleak-ass <laughs> ending. <laughs> um, so... I, at, once I ended up, you know, rewriting it, then it was sitting down saying, okay, now I'm going to start penciling the story from the beginning. Mm-hmm. So throwing out those original pages I did, starting from scratch. And at this point, I had met our, uh, our mutual friend, Carl Altstetter. Mm-hmm. And he had convinced me, you know, you're putting all this time into it. Indie comics publishing is hard, but it's a valid way to go. And nowadays, there's a lot more tools so that you don't have to lose your shirt doing it. And mm-hmm. being able to afford to do small print runs, you should really consider publishing this as a comic or a graphic novel. And I conceived of it as a singular book because I thought I would have to finish the whole thing up front anyway because the gap in time between me finishing each chapter or what would be an issue's worth of material would be too long. So I figured if I have to finish the whole thing and then do it, why not just publish it as a, as a complete book? Because that's kind of how I saw it. That's how I see most of the stories I tell mm-hmm. are as complete stories to the beginning, middle, and end. If I have more to say about those characters later on, then I conceive it as a new novel. Right. I don't necessarily think in terms of going from issue one to issue 300. So then, wow, I'm really drawing out this answer. <laughs> <laughs> but um, so probably two years from that... Two years from that phase, and then probably another year and a half of penciling. And I'd say, yeah, a year and a half of penciling, maybe a year or a little bit less of inking, mm-hmm. and then gray toning and Photoshop and, and book design. So all together, probably about five and a half years from mm-hmm. the time I started to the time I had a finished printed book. Right. Oh, and something I should mention, those, those rough 30 pages I ended up throwing out, Early in that phase, I ended up going to, when they had Wizard World Los Angeles, mm-hmm. they actually, it was much small, in a much smaller room at, at the LA Convention Center. And I did that show with nothing but a couple of prints of some, some pieces and a 24-page ash can mm. of that, that, the rough version of that. And I still have one of those, you know, laying around somewhere. And I think I had 50 of them printed up and I sold 48 of them mm. only because I wanted to keep two for myself. And I thought, okay, I am a no-name creator. No one knows me. I'm just starting out. 
and this story was interesting enough that I sold. And it, again, it's not even the full novel, but I was able to sell 48 ash cans yeah. to people who had never heard of me before. Maybe I'm onto something. Mm-hmm. So that I think that I don't think it would have deterred me had it not gone that well, but it definitely encouraged me to finish the book. Right. So, yeah. Ah. And the Ashcan model is something that you continued with uh, with Morningstar, right? Where oh. you initially mm-hmm. you would produce these Ashcans that would, um, mm-hmm. um, uh, they were I think twenty four page or twenty two. Yeah, page? they're, they're twenty four page. What the first one I did was simply a sketchbook of all before I started publishing the series. It was a sketchbook of my concept sketches with a little bit of text describing the premise and um, some character bios in there. Mm -hmm. Um, And then once I started working on the series proper, for each issue that I do, I do all of my... My 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 thumbnails and and lettering before I start doing the uh, the final pages. So I'll do I'll do my rough thumbnails. I'll do a lettering template that has all the the dialogue in it, and then I draw my layouts into that before I get around to actually inking and doing the final ones. I skip mm-hmm. a, a a detailed pencil page. And I basically ink my my layouts. And what I start doing is I realized well because it takes me a little bit more time. I'm not on a monthly schedule. I wanted people who were enjoying the work to not have to wait as long to read what was coming out next. And there's some people who like going to comic conventions and just collecting sketchbooks. They might yeah. not necessarily even be interested in reading the comic. And what I would do is I would print an ash can that has the the full dialogue of what's going to be in that upcoming issue, but just over my my layouts as opposed mm. to over finished pencils or inks. And I will print that. I'll print up you know anywhere to fifty to hundred of those per convention. And if and I'll only keep them in print until the finished version of that book that issue is done. Once right. I have the, the finished one, I don't print anymore. So, you know, I'll just, I'll sell through those at, at conventions, you know, for people that have been, you know, supporting my work. I don't want them to, to wait too long. If they really have to know what happens in the next issue, it's right there. You can still read it. Mm-hmm. It's just in rough, rough sketch. Yeah. So, hmm. And I think that's a, a pretty good model for, for keeping my work out in front of people. Cause I think that's the hardest thing for creatives to have a day job is, awareness make stay, staying in touch with people that did enjoy your work in the past yeah especially if mm-hmm. you're um for, for a lot of uh, people they they tend to do a local show or uh, one or two shows that are close to them and mm-hmm. you know if you're if you're in that cycle for too long with the same stuff you start mm-hmm. to see the same people and then mm-hmm. you know suddenly your your table isn't as visited as yes, much yes yes although you know that reminds me calling back to the other question you had about things I'd learned from doing a bunch of shows. Mm-hmm. There's still people from cities that I visited. Like for instance, I still get emails from people uh, in Wizard World, New Orleans mm. that keep asking, you coming back this year? Oh, wow. Like every year people are asking. I think that if I do another show in, a, in another city, fly, if I have the budget to start doing more shows where I'm flying, mm-hmm. New Orleans is another city I need to go back to because it was out of the, that year of experimenting, that was one of my better shows. Yeah. And the fact that people remember me there, I, I feel bad because a couple of different cities, there's people I've met online, um, Missouri, yeah, uh, a few other cities in the Midwest that, you know, I'll still stay in touch with them on social media. And everyone, every year when convention season comes around, it's like, Hey man, you know, we really enjoyed it. We'd love to have you come back. I'm like, hell, if I had the budget to do it, I would definitely do it. And I genuinely feel like I'm letting these people down. It, yeah. it, that's one of the few things that actually <laughs> gets to me is not being able to be present for people that have said, I like your work. Yeah. I want to see more of it. I'd like you to come back to my town. That bothers me to not be able to do that. Right. Because it's a gift 
for someone as much as we talk about you know the the people paying for work and supporting independent creatives money is a tangible asset it's a tangible way to express one's interest or approval of something but the most precious thing we have is time mm-hmm. not just in sense of oh our days are busy scheduled there's video games competing for our time movies are competing for our time it's we're going to die <laughs> you get 70 to 90 years you know, if you're lucky, mm-hmm. you know, sometimes much less than that. We're going to die. We have to choose how we spend our times. And you know, we don't start thinking about this until we get into our 40s. But, but we have to be very choosy as we get older about how we want to spend our time. And the fact that somebody says, I want to spend time with something you created, mm-hmm. that affects me very deeply. Yeah. On an emotional level, I have like a profound level of respect for that. Mm-hmm. So, and to not be able to be present for someone who has told me that, that gnaws at my soul. Yeah. I mean, especially now, like you said, there's so many distractions. Even mm-hmm. someone finding the time to, to tell you that is mm-hmm. like, a, it, it, that's a big hit. So yeah. To, to have someone tell you and to actually have you spend time with them or you sp- uh, they spend time with something you've created, it's mm-hmm. real. It's really precious. You're right. Yeah. It really is. Um, uh, New Orleans makes perfect sense because a lot of your your work, especially now with um, the prints that you've been doing, and with Morningstar, which we'll, we'll go back to in a second, but it's it's kind of it imbues this real nice. Um, uh, the, the storytelling is very much like uh, it's almost like a voodoo, um, Christian, mm-hmm. Catholic. It's it's very it's got a, mel- a philosophical melange. Yes, exactly. Yeah. So mm-hmm. there's a lot of, and it's funny you going uh, going back to the the story that you were saying about the the angel and the devil on the guy's so- shoulders. Mm-hmm. Um, it's funny that that motif is is present in your work <laughs> even back then. Um, yeah. Well, so you know, I was gonna say yeah. There's um. It is interesting because I am not I'm not anti-religious, but I'm mm-hmm. not a, a religious person. I don't subscribe to a particular faith. And yet the imagery of angels and devils and good and evil has remained consistent throughout my work. And I don't see it going away. Like I see myself possibly expressing it in other ways, Mm -hmm. but it's always been there. And there's times when I wonder, I'm like, am I really not a religious person? Because I draw a lot of angels and devils. Why am (laughs) I thinking about this all the time? And, you know, it is the fact that I grew up in a religious household. Mm. And I have a lot of respect for different people's theologies, even if I don't share them. But also just the iconography of it and the, the pure symbolism of good versus evil. You know, comic books and superheroes are our contemporary pop culture mythology. But that's, you know, those kind of icons of, of theology of all different faiths mm-hmm. are sort of the original mythology and icon and iconography. Yeah. Yeah, and the fall as well, which mm-hmm. is you know uh, Morning Star. I don't know if you want to uh, tell us what it's about. But oh it, yeah, well the the nice thing is the the pitch is short and sweet. It's <laughs> it's Lucifer's fall from heaven, but told as a western. Mm-hmm. The idea is at the dawn of creation, the universe is this raw, untamed frontier, a wild west. There's seven archangels that are like the magnif- magnificent seven, and Lucifer begins the story as their leader. He's actually the marshal of heaven. Because he wasn't created to be evil. He was supposed to be the brightest of all the angels. You know, he was supposed to be perfect. You know, where did things go wrong? So that's the story I'm telling, mm-hmm. except with horses and guns. <laughs> uh, how many issues is it? I, I always forget. I, oh, well, um, the whole series is eight issues long. That's right. I am currently 
drawing issue six, mm-hmm. and I released a trade a couple months ago of issues one through four, mm-hmm. plus a little bit of back matter and bonus material. Yeah. And the um, and this is part of the cycle that we were talking about, the ash cans that you're producing. Mm-hmm. So um, you're on six. I didn't realize you were that far in. Wow, that's incredible. Mm. Well, I mean, but it's been going for a couple of years. I really, I thought I'd be done with the whole series by now. Mm-hmm. And I'm looking at wrapping it up, not because I want to leave this world, but because <laughs> I have so many other, not, I have other ideas that I'm excited to tell and new stories I want to tell. At the same time, there are people who have been clamoring for a follow-up to Eye of the Gods. Oh, really? Oh, wow. That's so, great. And, and what I thought is that I could maybe out create a series of more of a Hellboy model where I could write, let's say, I don't know, four one-shot stories and then tell a one-shot story and then start working on a new project and maybe get an issue or two in and then release another one-shot. So like maybe a one-shot every couple of years and then collect that as another trade. Yeah. Although... The story that I already had as a one shot has evolved now into its own four issue miniseries. <laughs> in the, as as ideas, you know, I, the the fertilizer that that just gets sprinkled on creativity. You sit there with a seed, and no matter how simple you try to make an idea, it just grows and wants to be more complex. Mm-hmm. And it's a matter of pruning it down and then adding water and nourishment to the parts that seem interesting and letting them grow. Because maybe it does need to be longer than the original idea I had, but it's a matter of cutting it down to, well, what is really essential to that idea? What's the part that's compelling? Mm Because the one thing I will say, I'm still putting a lot of work into learning how to write better. As much as I go to figure drawing classes regularly, I have spent most of my life learning how to draw. Mm -hmm. I've spent the past few years learning how to write. And in both fields, I consistently feel like I have still have a lot to learn. But my personal approach is that I try to write lean. And it might be, you know, guilty to admit this, but I feel like if I keep my stories tight and keep the scenes moving, the pacing moving, people will forgive some of the maybe not as well plotted elements mm-hmm. or, you know, necessarily a character's motivations aren't as clear or perhaps maybe not as plausible as one might think. But you're like, well, if the story just moves right by and moves you to the next thing, you're almost like, you know what? I'll go with it though. That's uh, I don't want to stop and think about that. I'm enjoying where I'm going. I'm just keep rolling with it. So I try to I try to always keep my stories moving quickly. Mm-hmm. So it, that does mean at some point I'm going to challenge myself to do something that's very meditative and internal, just to see what it's like to sit with a character and just be there and think and feel and see if I can compel someone to stay engaged just with something that's on an emotional and not action or plot-driven level. I mean, I try to put a lot of emotion into all of the stories I'm doing, Mm -hmm. but they're also very plotted and plot-driven. So it's kind of finding that balance. I want to make sure that no matter how, what happens in the plot, that you at least care about these characters and what's happened to them. Because if you don't care what happens to them, then, you know, what's the point? A reader's going to get bored. Yeah, I am always trying to think about I am trying to think about the reader. I think that that's an interesting thing. Instead of saying that people are pandering, it's not necessarily a matter of pandering. It's simply saying, if someone's going to give you the respect of spending time with what you created, you should respect their time. Give them something that's worthwhile that they're going to, when they're done putting it down, saying, I didn't waste my time reading yeah. this. Yeah. So. Yeah, I think there's definitely, like there's a big difference between you changing an idea 
to uh, to fit what the readers want, and you hone in something mm-hmm. to make it something that the readers want. You know? oh, yeah, yeah, definitely. Mm. So, um, if people want to see your work, you you do the you have a YouTube channel where you show a lot of process stuff, um, and where else could they find out about you? You mentioned your blog as well. Mm-hmm. Well, you can find all of my work online at um, jeremy.net. It's G-E-R-I-M-I dot net. And if you go there on the, uh, the sidebar on the navigation, you can see that there's links to my blog, which is my Tumblr page. I post something almost every day, five days a week, whether it's figure drawing sketches, um, comics artwork, work in progress. Then there's a link to my, my YouTube channel. On there, I've probably got like 150-odd videos now, and I usually try to put up one video a week. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, occasionally it's just skip week. But it, they're, they're time-lapse videos of me talking about my creative process. Much as we're talking here, imagine having this conversation while having visuals of seeing a comp page being drawn while I'm talking about it. And sometimes I'm talking specifically about what I'm drawing. Sometimes it's more like the, the video is just sort of a backdrop while I talk about different creative ideas in general. Mm-hmm. So, you know, I've got the YouTube channel there. Um, the, the website itself, jeremy.net, is my store. So if someone actually wanted to see, oh, these are the comics he's created, um, graphic novel Eye of the Gods, you can check that out. Um, check out some of my art prints that I have there that I sell at conventions. T-shirts I've done, sort of different, uh, different illustrations I've done. You know, all of that stuff is there on the site. So mm-hmm. it's got the links to uh, the YouTube. The, that's the store. There's links to the YouTube. There's links to the, the blog from there. I have a newsletter also that I send out because let's say you're too busy to follow this guy online <laughs> and see what he's doing. It's like, you know what? Just, just send me an email once a week. Just let me see what you're up to. Um, the, uh, the newsletter I send once a week, there's a link there. Um, the navigation to sign up for that. And every week you get an, an email and it's a collection of my blog posts. So you'll get to see some sketches of what I'm working on. I usually add a little bit of a text piece, you know, about whatever I'm thinking about on that day. Sometimes they're specifically about comic stuff. Sometimes it's, oh, I was listening to this song today and it made me think or feel this way. Mm-hmm. Um, sometimes they're in-depth little mini essays about writing or drawing. It's just sort of like my online art diary that I'm sharing with, with you. It's sort of like... That's the thing I started trying to realize was in this world of social media and where people are constantly marketing stuff and putting stuff out for their attention, how does the individual creative stand out? Mm -hmm. And people are very fascinated with where artists get their ideas from, where creative people, how they do what they do, how they make what they make. And my idea was simply to try and share share with people the inside of my brain. These thoughts that I mentioned before that I sometimes wisely or unwisely share <laughs> I'm, I'm now documenting them there <laughs> so you can just sit there and peek in his brain like oh really that's how you did that that's what you think of that hmm uh, problematic but but for the most part i think it's more of a positive experience of just sort of like oh wow that's how that works and yeah, i never thought of this that way you know kind of sh- just letting people inside how i how i operate mm-hmm. creatively yeah and in some cases how i navigate the world Okay, and that's jeremy.net. Yes. We'll put some links up in the episode notes. But for now, thank you very much, Jeremy. It's been a pleasure. It's always a pleasure to see you, Jamie. Thank you so much for having me. It's an honor to be on. That's it for this episode. You can find us online at whoiampodcast.com and you can email us at whoiampodcast at gmail.com or phone at 818-308-4066. You can also find us on iTunes if you want to subscribe there. Thank you for listening. I'm your host, Jamie Gamble, and that was This Is Who I Am.